This morning, we're going to continue in our study into 1 Samuel, and we're going to continue on in chapters 18 and 19 today. We're going to be covering two chapters. But before I begin, I want to share a story that I read. There's a fable of an eagle which could outfly another, and the other didn't like it. The latter saw a sportsman one day and said to him, I wish you would bring down, down that eagle. The sportsman replied that he could if he only had some feathers to put in his, into his arrow. So the eagle pulled out, pulled out uh, one of his wings. The arrow was shot, but didn't quite reach. The rival eagle, oh, they didn't shoot the rival eagle because it was flying too high. The envious eagle pulled out more feathers and kept pulling him out kept pulling him out until he lost so many that he couldn't fly and then the sportsman turned around and killed him my friend my friends if you are jealous the only man you can hurt is yourself the story that i just read illustrates the chapters that we're going to be covering today in chapter 18, we're going to see some of the issues that caused additional tension between Saul and David. And in chapter 19, we'll be seeing a defiant king become more obvious about his murderous intentions and how David was helped by those who truly loved him. I hope this message shows you that the ugliness of jealousy what it can do, what it can cause, you know, the, how horrible people can be treated, but also what we can do, how we can handle it, what we can do when we're being treated as such. David will show us, David will show us here, will, ex will be the example for us and how we ought to respond when we're being treated wrongly. So before we get into the passage, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord God, we truly are thankful on this Palm Sunday, Lord. First of all, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, um, to teach us, to guide us, to warn us, to show us exactly who you are, Lord. And so on this Palm Sunday, we do celebrate you. We do honor you, Lord by digging into your word and seeing what it is that you want to tell us, Lord. You have a message for each and every single one of us individually, Lord, and I pray right now that you will reveal that to those who are listening, those who are watching, Lord. You just minister to them now as they, as they hear what you have to say, Lord, as they read your word. Lord, fill us with your, spirit, with your spirit and fill this room, Lord God, with your love and, and remove all distractions, Lord. Protect us here from any harm that, that may want to come through our doors, Lord, and keep us safe, Lord, here this morning, and, and the children and everyone here involved, Lord. So, uh, yes, Lord. We honor you now with this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. First Samuel chapter 17. I mean, chapter 18, sorry. And the word of God says, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in, a, in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with, with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines and shouts of joy and with three stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul was furious and resented the song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid from David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore Saul sent David away from him, and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter, Merib. I give her to you as my wife, if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against them. Let, it, let the hand of the Philistines be against them. Then David responded, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time to give Saul's daughter to Merib, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And when it was... Reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, You can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered the servants, Speak to David in private and tell him, Look, the king is pleased with you, and all the servants love you. Therefore you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Am I a poor commoner? The servants reported back to Saul. These are the words David spoke. Then Saul replied, Say this to David. The king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins 
to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to, to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all, the Saul, than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. So in the last couple of chapters, it's become clear that David wasn't just chosen from eternity to be the founder of the messianic dynasty of kings, but it, he was also providentially prepared by the Lord to undertake his royal responsibilities. We've seen how David served as a shepherd in the fields and had the loving, protective heart of a shepherd, a fitting attribute of a king. He had learned responsibility and courage by confronting and slaying wild beasts that were threatening his flocks. There in the fields with the sheep, he learned how to play the lyre, a skill that would help him compose all those amazing psalms which we read about in that awesome book and all those psalms that praise the Lord and that celebrate his mighty deeds. Thereafter, he had been brought into the palace to the king as a musician and warrior so that he might acquire the experience of being a national leader. Although he knew nothing about what it meant to lead, he eventually gained the experience to be king at his coronation some 15 years later. But his education wasn't always pleasant. With his rising popularity among the people came a, de a deterioration of his relationship with Saul. See, the king became insanely, intensely jealous of Israel's new hero. Well, after the dramatic victory over Goliath, Saul brought him into the palace once again, this time as his commander of his army. David's favored position in the court was further strengthened by the personal affection felt for him by Jonathan, Saul's oldest son. So close and so tight was their friendship and their bond between one another. And this was a bond. This was a close friendship. I, this passage shows me that two men can actually love one another without it being a sexual, an eros kind of love. That it can be a deep, 
love, that two men, two women can actually love each other without it crossing that line. There's no doubt about it. And this is what I imagine, this is what I, what I believe occurred between Jonathan and, and Saul. It was just a deep bond between them. Again, that friendship. And it was so close. Jonathan, who was supposed to be the, the, the next person aligned to the throne of Israel, that he, became, that he made a covenant with David. Now, in case you weren't aware, a covenant in Scripture was a solemn promise, almost like an oath, that bound the parties to its provisions. Well, this particular covenant of friendship between them was based on two realities. Again, the intense love they had for one another and Jonathan recognizing that David, not he, was the true heir of the throne. So to express his loyalty, his respect, his and friendship, the, the prince stripped himself of his robe, his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and gave it to David. Now, meanwhile, after all this, David began to win battle after battle. And it didn't take long for his military exploits to be celebrated in song. And the song, again, went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Well, it says in verse 8 that Saul became furious and resented this song. Why? Because they were giving more credit to David's military accomplishments than to that of the king's. In his mind, he was thinking, David might as well ask for the kingdom or demand the kingdom. But also, you know, he probably was also thinking that it was because of him that the people had a kingdom. Not God, but because of him that the people had a kingdom. So Saul watched David jealously. From that day forward. Now someone, you may have heard this before, but someone once said, jealousy is the poison we drink while we wait for our enemy to die. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, even as Christians, jealousy can often manifest itself among us in the church and outside church organizations, it can creep up. J.C. Ryle said this, so deeply planted are the roots of human corruption that even after we're born again, renewed, washed, sanctified, justified, and made living members of Christ, these roots remain alive in the bottom of our hearts. <coughs> and like the <clears throat> leprosy in the walls of the house, we never get rid of them until the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved. 
sin, no doubt, in the believer's heart has no longer dominion. It's checked, controlled, mortified, and crucified by the explosive power of the new principle of grace. The life of a believer is a life of victory and not of failure. But the very struggles which go on within his bosom, the fight that he finds is needful to fight daily, the watchful jealousy which he is obliged to exercise over the inner man, the contest, the contest between the flesh and the spirit, the inward groanings which no one knows, but he who has experienced them, all, all testify to the same great truth, all show the enormous power and vitality of sin. Mighty indeed must be the foe. Mighty indeed must that foe be who even when crucified is still alive. Powerful statement there by J.C. Ryle. And it's true. Jealousy is a powerful foe. And it can happen to any one of us, even though we're born again Christians, even though we worship and adore and love Christ. It can happen. It can happen because you see someone serving in a position in the church that you want to serve in. It can happen, you know, when you see someone in the church being blessed in ways that you wished you were. And maybe they're a new Christian. You've been walking with the Lord for years and years. And the Lord's raining his blessings on that person. And you have forgotten what that looks like in your own life. So yes, it does creep up. And we must be mindful. We must be careful. Because, you see, if it's not addressed, it's going to show up again one way or another. See, pride is the root of all those jealous feelings. It's that feeling like, I deserve this, not them. I've been serving the Lord longer. I'm a better Christian than they are. I do more for the Lord than they do. It's those I statements. I, I, I. And so we must look for those areas in our life where it's likely to spring up. Those areas in our heart where that haven't been that haven't been cleaned out. We haven't allowed the Lord to clean out, to, to refine those areas in our hearts that we haven't surrendered yet and give them up to the Lord. Jealousy, my friends, is an ugly, ugly monster, and it can cause serious damage, not just to you, but to others as well. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed by this age, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect, and, and perfect will of God. Surrender yourselves. Surrender your bodies. Surrender your minds, your hearts to Him. Recognize that pride. Recognize that jealousy and address it. Tell the Lord to take it. Don't hold on to it. Well, in verses 10 and 11, we see the next stage of Saul's angry, rageful disposition to David's rising popularity. It also illustrates for us that close connection that jealousy and murder have with one another. You see, given the chance, it will express it, it will jealousy will express it itself in an attempt to kill. Now think about it. How many stories in the news have you heard about someone getting murdered because of a jealous rage? But again, you don't have to really watch the news to see the reality of this connection. All you have to do is just really look into your own heart. Think about that person that you felt the most jealous about. That person that every time you think of, you just can't stand because they're just, you're just jealous of them in one way or another. Now, as you think about them, and that anger begins to boil up, let me ask you, if you knew you could get away with it, would you get rid of them? Would you have gotten rid of them? I'm sure many of you probably have thought about it, have, you know, said, I wonder how, what, what, you know, how I can, you know, get them to fish, to swim with the fish as they say, well, if you have, first of all, it ought to show you, again, how much of a sinner you are, how much that even though you're saved, that sinful nature is still there. But also ought to show you, again, how closely connected jealousy and murder are to one another. In the ESV, Proverbs 6.34 says this, for jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. The point here is this. Anyone is capable of doing the worst to another human being when they are overtaken by the evil desires of their flesh. But you, Christian, aren't of the flesh, but of the Spirit, if you've truly been born again. Therefore, as Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. When we're not saved, our unregenerate selves, our fleshly selves, the only thing that's putting those feelings of, of murderous rage to the side is a sense of 
human morality. But everyone, I think, pushed to a certain point is capable of doing some pretty crazy, heinous, horrible things to another human being. But as Christians, once you've realized what Christ has done for us on the cross and how we ought to treat others, how we, are, how we ought to look at others, they're supposed to love others or love our neighbors and treat them with love and respect, even though we may be disrespected and treated with hate and rage and anger, we're not to be that way with others. And so we are controlled and led by the Spirit. And He's the one who guides us. He's the one who tells us, you know what? Be careful. Be careful because you're pushing it. Let me take over. And when we allow him to do that, again, he does some beautiful, amazing things that we would have never have thought we would have been able to do on our, in our own flesh, in our own um, sinful, old way of living. You can walk by the Spirit, and you certainly will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So, again, verses 10 and 11 says that after hearing the song being sung about David, he became so enraged that he, inspired by an evil spirit, tried to spear David, not once, but twice. Now, in regards to the evil spirit God sent, I... I think I covered it pretty well last week. Um, I won't get all into it again uh, today. So if you want to hear more about that and my explanation on that, uh, definitely I encourage you to watch last week's message. But here, Saul failed at what he wanted to do. What his heart, what his flesh was leading him to do, and that was to kill, to assassinate David, the future king of Israel. But he failed. He didn't he wasn't successful at that because God intervened. He intervened and rescued David. And so thus he was able to get away from Saul's assassination attempts. Now, David, he could have said, you know what? I don't need this. Saul just tried to kill me. He tried to pin me against the wall with a spear. Why do I need to be here? Why should I even put up with this? He's always angry. He's always in a fit of rage. He doesn't listen to his servants. You know, he's Occasionally, he, when I play my lyre, he calms down, but man, this tops it all. He tried to kill me. He could have just packed up his bags and left. He could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't. He continued to serve the king that just tried to kill him. Whenever you feel that way in church or you're serving in the church and God has called you 
to serve there and serve there. Continue to serve there. Yes, you're maybe helping out the pastor there, the other leaders there, but you know, you're ultimately responsible for what God has called you to do and where He's called you to be at. No matter how hard things get, no matter even if the people there seem like they're all trying to throw a spear at you and pin you against the wall, no. Don't pack your bags and leave. Continue to serve until you hear the Lord telling you otherwise. Now, there are times, yes, I agree, that, you know, if your life is in danger, yeah, okay. You know, definitely, you're not supposed to be there. Go away. You don't want to, I don't want you to get murdered or killed or anything like that. But my point being, again, is no matter how hard things get, continue serving. Verse 12 then informs us that deep down inside, Saul knew why everything was going wrong with him and right with David. Because the Lord was with David, but had left him, had left Saul. And as a result, Saul was afraid of David. He therefore gave David an army commission, which kept him out of his sight, but also at the same time kept him out, kept him in the public eye. David, however, continued to be successful in all his activities. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And so the more successful and popular David became, the more the king dreaded him. In the next section, the unresolved issue of Saul's promise to give his daughter into marriage to the man who defeated Goliath comes up. Now Saul should have right away automatically given his older daughter, Merib, to David after, de after he defeated that Philistine champion. But instead of keeping his word, he added a caveat. He'd allow Merib to marry David if David would be a warrior for him and fight the Lord's battles. In reality, though, Saul used the cloak of marriage and zeal for the Lord to hide his true intentions, to set David up to be killed in battle by God's enemies. Well, a date was set for the marriage, but when the time came, and I imagine David all dressed up in his finest marriage suit, and, and all the guests had arrived, it was canceled. Not long after that, Saul gave Merib to Adriel, the Mahalahite, as his wife. Even though David was humble, not feeling worthy to become the king's son-in-law, 
Saul's behavior was inexcusable. And this must have just really been an embarrassment for David. Now, what's interesting about this is that later we find out that Merab and Adriel ended up having five sons. Years later, in a severe act of judgment, and a severe act of judgment on Saul and his bloody house, seven of his descendants were hanged by the Gibeonites. Five of those who died were the sons of Merab and Adriel. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 21. According to that chapter there, they were executed by hanging before the Lord, indicating that judgment was ultimately his. After this, we're told that another one of Saul's children deeply loved David. This time it was the youngest daughter, Michael. So Saul agreed to, have, to give her to him, provided that he produced a payment, a drawery of 100 Philistine foreskins. If you don't know what a foreskin is, come see me afterwards and I'll explain what a foreskin is. But yes, that's what he required, 100 foreskins. Again, Saul hoped to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines, but it wasn't God's plan for the future king to be eliminated so easily. Well, sure enough, David returned. He, re he was victorious in battle, and we, he returned. He came back with the bizarre payment in double measure and won Michael as his bride. As continual military success um, became or made it clear, the, the continual military success of David made it clear that the Lord was with David. And Saul's hatred and fear of him continued to grow. Now, in looking at the whole uh, chapter 18 as a whole, the point really isn't about David's relationship with the royal family or really about his popularity, but rather the narrator's explicit statement that Yahweh had abandoned Saul and instead, and it was instead or is instead with David. That theme is repeated three times in this chapter. That's the main theme here. No matter what Saul tries to do to stop David's rise in popularity, it only propels him, it only propels David further into the limelight. And so by the time we get to the end of this chapter, the narrator informs us that Saul himself now came to understand the two reoccurring elements of this task of this text, Yahweh, the Lord, is with David, and Saul's family loves him very much. Now, as Christians, you can take great comfort in the central ideas 
of this chapter, which can be boiled down to this. Even when an enemy of God, motivated by anger, jealousy, hatred, attempts to intervene forcibly against the progress of what God is accomplishing, that very intervention itself can be used to, to further God's purposes. As born-again Christians, we're called to refuse retaliation and to live in such a way as not to over, not, uh, not only to overcome, but transform the oppressors. Although Saul had set his course and would not allow himself to be deterred, David was faithful to what God placed before him, and God was with him. As Christians, as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, we must bear testimony to God's grace in our lives in good times and in bad times. We must remember that a loving response to opposition can transform our enemies, but more importantly, it transforms us. It transforms us more into the image of Christ. Think about all those times when Jesus was opposed, when he was spoken out against. Did he talk back? Did he say anything in return? Did he fight with them? No. He didn't. He ultimately gives us an example, is the example in which we, the kind of people we ought to want to emulate, want to be like, and we will one day when we get to heaven, we'll be like him. And that's something I, a promise that I hold on to. So even when I, in this life now, is I, when I fail, I get up and I keep going. And I mention this because again, we are, you're all going to fail. You're all going to mess up. That's the reality of this life. That's the reality of our flesh, of our sinful nature, that we're going to fall. We're going to blow it really hard, but how we respond, how we respond when we fall says a lot about the kind of person we are, the kind of faith we have in Christ, knowing that even though we fall, he will, he's going to be right there to pick us up. He's going to be right there to say, it's all right, get back up, let's keep going. He's not, you know, we don't have a God that says, you know what, you deserve being down there. And you know what, you take a time out, you stay there until I'm ready to pick you up. No, he's not that kind of God. Not at all. We have a Savior who died for us, who died for you once and for all. So again, I encourage you, if, if you feel today like you've fallen and you can't get up, ask Jesus. Look to Jesus, look to the cross, and he will lift you up.
and then keep going. Allow the Lord to show you what caused you to fall, what caused you to, to blow, what messed up, what led to those things, and, and ask Him to change you, to reveal those things to you so that you will be changed. Learn from your mistakes. Don't keep, don't keep falling for the same mistake on, you know, because of the same sin over and over and over again. Learn. Learn what the Lord has been, is trying to teach you. Don't ignore it. All right, so I also now want to cover chapter 19 because it continues with the main themes covered in verse 18. So let's go there now and read chapter 19 together. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, My father Saul intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in a secret place and stay there. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, where you are and talk to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He said to him, the king should not sin against his servant, David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life, he took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord brought about great victory for all Israel. He saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan's advice and swore an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. So Jonathan summoned David and told him all these words. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul and he served him as he did before. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them. With such great force, they fled from him. Now an evil spirit sent from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting at his, in his palace holding a spear. David was playing the lyre, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, ran away, and escaped that night. Saul sent agents to David's house to watch for him and kill him in the morning. But his wife, Michael, warned David, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead tomorrow. So she lowered David from the window and fled, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. When Saul sent agents to seize David, Michael said, He's sick. Saul sent the agents back to see David and said, bring him on his bed so I can kill him. When the agents arrived, to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some goat hair on its head. Saul asked Michael, why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away and he has escaped. She answered him, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. 
Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Naioth. Naioth. When it was reported to Saul that David was in Naioth in Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. When they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began, to prop, began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents, and even they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Siku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth in Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth in Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and, he, and as he walked along, the prof, he prophesied until he entered Naoth of Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all day and all night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? As you can tell, the main focus of this chapter is, of course, on David. Now, the great issue here that we're invited to reflect, however, is the contest between the relentless will of Yahweh and the diseased but powerful will of Saul. There's a clash there between those two wills. God will have David as king. That's the hidden hope of this entire story. Yet Saul wants David destroyed. He wants him killed for the sake of his own throne and also for the sake of his own peace of mind. In this chapter, the basic theme stated clearly right from the beginning. Saul has determined that David is a threat and that cannot be tolerated. He must be killed. By, but now, this determination goes beyond Saul's sneaky ways in which he tried to do that in chapter 18. You see there, Saul tried to move unnoticed in his attack on David. And here now, Saul, he doesn't care now who notices. Why? Because he's desperate. His desperation, however, is always countered by the resolve of God. So after an initial and successful attempt by Jonathan to soothe his father's feelings towards David in verses 1 through 7, Saul sent Saul set into into in motion further steps to destroy David. First, he tried to slay him once more with his own hand, with a spear. He tried to pin him against the wall. Then he hired conspirators to murder him in his own bed. 
a plot foiled by Michael, his wife. That's how you can tell a wife really loves her husband. She's not going to allow him to get killed in his own bed. You know, I, I, I do believe Robin would do that for me too. He definitely would warn me if someone was trying to kill me in my bed. Next, Saul sent men to Naoth Arama, where David had taken refuge with Samuel. The prophet's very own hometown. Their efforts were also unsuccessful, for they... And later Saul were overwhelmed by the Spirit of God who came on them and caused them to act like prophets. They weren't officially prophets, but for that moment, that time, they acted like prophets. In other words, they fell into a trance or an ecstatic state, a condition which immobilized them and made them incapable of accomplishing their evil intentions. The entire story thus far, as you can probably tell, seems to have degenerated into essentially a soap opera. Jonathan has deceived and disobeyed his father for David's sake. Michael shamelessly tricks her father and then lies to cover it all up. David has endured the humiliating escape through a window and is now on the run, never to appear in Saul's court again. One commentator said this regarding this chapter. There is nothing here of God or God's will or God's coming kingdom. We are treated to calculating human actions that do not conform to our expectations. Something is deeply awry when a future king must crawl through a window, when the wife of a coming king must lie to the father who is still king. The evil spirit of Saul has infected the entire scene. Thus, this passage confirms, especially when read together with chapter 18, that Saul is no longer fit to serve as Israel's anointed one. He has lost his mind. He's completely lost it. He can't serve as king anymore. Now, one of the questions this chapter often challenges us is this. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said that that shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, if lying is sinful, is there ever a time when it's justifiable? Well, this question here is more difficult today than in any time in modern history. See, the reason is, the reason is because of our current culture, especially here in America in which truth claims are no longer being evaluated as true or false, but are subjected to reinterpretation. You see, there's this idea out there that truth is relative. What is true for one person 
may not be true for another person. And so thus, to be precise about the topic is impossible. And the definition of justifiable falsehood is therefore blurred. It's hard to really define it nowadays because, again, you know, what is truth? People will say, what is truth? In such an environment, it may be dangerous for Christians to explore times when falsehood is acceptable because we may find ourselves vulnerable to this current view concerning truth. Now, if we reject this aspect, the aspect that truth is relative, Christians will assert that truth is undivided and that we're still under a mandate to be honest and truthful. However, we must also ask if there are times when modern believers would be justified in deceiving intentionally, just as, just as Jonathan and Michael and other biblical characters are praised for doing themselves. There are plenty of examples in which the answer appears to be yes. Not surprisingly, the best examples come from the experiences of World War II. Because in this period, it's clear, there is no blurred line that believers were faced with the most striking conflict between good and evil and were forced to make the most difficult choices in life. So for example, an Allied agent might be cooperating with the French resistance in preparations of the great invasion of Normandy in June 6, 1944. If he were captured by the Nazis and asked for information about the invasion, his answers could cost thousands of lives and tip the scales of the war in favor of the Nazis. But a simple lie could lead the Axis forces to make calculated mistakes in their preparations and help the Allies or help the Allied cause immensely. As it turned out, an elaborate system of lies did in fact deceive Hitler, who assumed that the invasion would be at another place at another time and refused to believe the news when the invasion actually occurred. Now, that's just an example, but it's, it's important to clearly state that it, in such extreme ethical dilemmas, well, they're rare for today's American Christians. We should be careful here and not assume that in our context, we have frequent situations in which it would be desirable, it would, in which it would be desirable to mislead or deceive another person. Such extreme steps are required when we're confronted with life-threatening choices. To illustrate this, let me give you, let me take another example from the events of World War II and apply it to modern day, to a modern day 
hypothetical scenario. Imagine you know, a group of people rise to power here in this country, and they start to round up the so-called undesirables of this country and sending them off to camps. And, and then rumors start being heard or rumors are being said that they're actually getting killed. As Christians, what would you do if you were confronted with a situation where someone that you knew was living a sinful lifestyle or doesn't have the same faith as you comes to you for help? Would you protect them? Would you lie for them? to keep them from being taken away. And there are times and situations where when it comes to the life of another person, yes, absolutely. And the Lord will help you. He will reveal to you, he will reveal to you what you must say and do and the actions you must take and you must trust him because you know that if it's discovered that you're helping them, that you may be, that your life may cost you your own life and the life of your family, but my point being is, yes, there are times when you're going to have to, when you should lie. Now, again, it's not easy to say, but when it comes to the life of another person, to protect the life of another person, then again, I, I see that as a justifiable reason. Now, again, although this scenario is possible, but highly unlikely, I do think that as we draw near and near to Jesus' imminent return, Christians will be experiencing a lot more opposition and persecution from, from those that uh, think that we're in the way of human evolution. From progressing as humans, we therefore must be watchful, ready, and wise in the short amount of time we have left here on earth and in these temporal bodies. The world may treat us the same way Saul treated David with rage, contempt, hate, and fear simply because we believe in and follow a man, our God named Jesus because we believe that he died on the cross for our sins and that he is the giver of life. And believe it or not, there are some who are currently experiencing this right now in different parts of the world. And so we must understand that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering right now. And if we can, if we're able to, we must do what we can to help them. Well, if the day comes when we are experiencing persecution like this, keep in mind two important passages from the Bible. In John 15, 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. And in Romans 12, 19, Paul wrote, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. 
because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. These two chapters, my friends, has shown us that in this life, doing the right thing because we trust and obey God will not, will not always be easy, especially when they see that the Lord is with us. But like David, we must not give up on what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. We must continue to trust him even when it seems like the world is against us and the world hates us. Don't forget what Jesus did for you on the cross and what his resurrection means for all of us. If you're watching and listening and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And so I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and with all your heart, with all sincerity, pray this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I now turn from my sins and confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. Now come, now fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he may help guide me in my new born again life. In your name. Amen. If you sincerely prayed that with all your heart, you're now a born again believer. And there's a celebration in heaven going on right now for you. So if you have also, just let us know. Contact us. You want to hear your story and maybe help you out in your next steps. This concludes today's message for those watching and listening online. And we hope that you've been blessed. The Lord has spoke to you in these two, in these two chapters that we covered. Thank you again. We look forward to seeing you again next week. And goodbye and God bless and farewell. Thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We hope that Pastor Angel's message blessed you this morning. We want to encourage you to spread the gospel by sharing this message through social media. If you want more information about Fresh Vision Church, such as our service time, how to get connected, or you want to hear current or past studies, please visit our website at fvcelp.org. If you're interested in donating to the ministry of Fresh Vision Church, there is a PayPal link in the video description below. Once again, thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We pray that you have a blessed week and we hope to see you again soon.